Älskar du den här podden? Stötta den genom IKAs nya supporterfunktion. Det är helt upp till dig hur mycket du vill bidra med och det finns ingen bindningstid. Klicka på länken i poddbeskrivningen för att visa din uppskattning och stötta podden. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi and welcome to Something About Stocks with me, Mark Jedda and Tim Hansson. How are you doing, How are Tim? You? I'm doing very good. How are you? Great, great. You noticing uh, something different today? Yeah, we're speaking English. <laughs> yeah, it's um, something new for us. But uh, when we have uh, awesome guests uh, from abroad, something we have to do, of course. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, what do you think about the market so far this week? Um, basically the markets were closed half of Thursday and then Friday. So basically we had Omex Swedish stock market up one and a half percent this morning. Lovely start on the week. It's Monday. Yeah. yeah. It's been really roaring in the past, uh, the past week here, like after New Year's, uh, mm. maybe it's a delayed Christmas rally. Who knows what it is? Mm. Um, But I heard on the news this morning that uh, the food prices are probably going to continue up, and yeah. uh, like the, like food groceries overall has risen above ten percent, so around eleven yeah. percent in two. Like inflation is still high, but so many investors I think are riding on the deflation, like investment thesis. Uh, yeah, from what I've seen at least, uh, butter was up thirty four percent over nationwide. Yeah, 34%. I heard that's a Swedish thing, but because of the the monopoly and like the oligopoly with the Arla and everything. Yeah. Like if you compare it the Swedish prices to the Finnish prices, it's a huge disparity. Actually. Yeah, I think uh, Volio is Finnish, right? Um, they're trying yeah. to price cut the Swedish market. I've noticed. So there's okay, a nice. price war going between Arla and Volio and normal standardized cooking. Butter. Yeah, yeah. We don't. You don't have Lurpak in Sweden, right? Lurpak. No, no. Okay, I'm a huge Brigott fan, so okay. that, that's my cho- choosing <laughs> of butter. Okay, and if we look at some quick look at the financial markets, we've seen some 
disturbance in uh, in Brazil as yep. there have been some riots there. Uh, quite similar to what happened in uh, the US a few years ago. Um, I think there's over 400 arrests after they've been storming the Brazilian Congress. And as a result, Brazilian stocks also have been declining a bit. Um, Millicom has a lot of uh, telephone networks in Brazil, right? I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's that many Swedish stocks that, that has exposure to to Brazil, but maybe Millicom is one of them. Yeah, I, I think Volvo's the Brazilian market. The trucks is pretty big, mm. but uh, in the long term, in terms of Volvo trucks, I don't think that's a big issue. But no. the Millicom might yeah. feel the effects of this, but that's yeah. it. Uh, also, one a bit of a funny thing was this morning there was um, a bulk carrier that got stuck in the Suez Canal again. <laughs> uh, uh. But un- unlike last time during COVID, the, the, it didn't actually cause any major disruptions to the the traffic in the canal. So yeah, that's a good thing. You know, you know, I work part time in the harbor. They're still talking about the delay that's been caused by the Suez blockage of the Evergreen. Uh, or the evergreen that blocked the Suez Canal. Really? So, uh, yeah, supposedly there's still a lag in the supplement uh, <laughs> or supply chains, basically. Oh, wow. I heard recently that due to like an incoming recession, everything in the US, so many ships have begun to they began to slow their pace mm. uh, when they're when they're going across the ocean. So it's going to take longer for them to arrive. Uh, so they're saving fuel, and then they also don't have to. Uh, we're as much about the, the freight prices uh, and everything in the harbor. Um, Genius. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. M- maybe we should uh, get going into our main subject of today. I think uh, we should. Yeah, which of course we have an interview here today. Uh, and not like anyone we had before. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit wooed myself. <laughs> okay. Uh, and with that, I would like to introduce um, former Wall Street strategist from Bank of America, uh, now CEO of David Wu Unbound. Uh, please welcome in David Wu. Nice to have you here, David. No, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Um, I saw that you, re- re- you recently attended um, a seminar about high inflation uh, at the Reichman University. How, how, yeah. how did that go? Yeah, that went very well. It was good. You know, it was uh, actually, uh, you know, I, I kicked up the conference and then it was wrapped up by uh, Norio Rubini. And it was good that actually... The two of us actually very rarely are on the same page, but on this particular occasion, it seems that we are in broad agreement. Mm. There we go. And that is that is high inflation, or? Well, I think I think both of us. I think it's not so much inflation, but rather stagflation. You know, I think there's a big difference between stagflation and inflation. Inflation just basically means higher, you know, higher basically growth rate of prices, whereas stagflation is really about a worsening of the trade-off between growth and inflation, meaning that you might end up getting lower inflation, but it's going to come at the expense of much lower growth. 
So it just means that, you know, to go back to, you know, 2% inflation like we had before, you only be able to achieve that with much lower growth rate and much higher real interest rates. And that obviously not going to be good for the, envir- the investment environment. Hmm. True. Uh, but maybe David, you would like to introduce yourself and like tell me about your background and everything, what you're doing now, your current projects with did um, David Wuenbaum as well. Sure, just so, you know, so just so that people actually understand, sort of like my background. Like I was, yeah. I was born, I was born in the U.S. I was born in Pittsburgh when my father went to graduate school there. But I grew up in Taiwan. My parents came from China. I grew up in Taiwan. I was at the age of 15. My parents put me on a plane and sent me off to boarding school in America. So I was educated, you know, in the U.S. primarily. I have uh, high school, university, and then um, I got my PhD in economics from Columbia University. You know, afterwards, I joined the International Monetary Fund. You know, as an economist, I spent five years at the International Monetary Fund. By the way, one of my mentors was a Swede at the International Monetary Fund. Other, no other than basically uh, Stefan Ingves. Stefan Ingves. Stefan, actually, believe it or not, he was, at the time, the head of the Monetary and Exchange Affairs Department at the IMF. And I worked with him on, you know, the Asian crisis, the Russian crisis. Oh, wow. because. Stefan, if you recall, he had been sort of someone who helped basically turn around the Swedish banking system. So he was really an expert on bank restructuring. So I, you know, basically uh, worked with him extensively on basically um, banking re- restructuring issue before I left basically the IMF to join, um, you know, the private sector. You know, Stefan went back to uh, obviously Sweden to become governor of the Rix Bank, and I went on to London. Yeah. To basically um, to run local market strategy for Citigroup. This was back in 2001. So I stayed at Citigroup for four years. I ran basically uh, EM research for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. After that, emerging markets, right? Emerging market, exactly. Yeah. And afterwards, I spent uh, six years at Barclays Capital, where I ran global foreign exchange strategy. And um, in 2010, Bank of America knocked on my door and uh, offered me a job I could not turn down because it was my dream job, which is to run global <laughs> interest rates, global you know, foreign exchange, and global emerging markets at the same time. Like for anybody who's wow. sort of like a macro guy, that's like a dream job. So I took it without even thinking. And um, so I did that for 10 years. You know, my team was the top-ranked team on Wall Street in macro strategy. And we cover 120 countries, you know, team of basically 50 analysts, you know, based everywhere around the world. So in 2020, after having one, once again, the number one ranked position, I said, well, you know, I reached the top of my career. It's time to basically go do something else. I decided I wanted to basically spend the rest of my career trying to make investing much more accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. Especially given so many young people, millennials like you guys are basically getting into investing. I kind of feel like social plat- social media provides the kind of right platform for me to reach out to them. So that's sort of my goal now is trying to basically bring up the level of investment, basically process and knowledge and skill so that people like you guys can eventually go on to compete with the Wall Street pros. <laughs> You've earned enough money to sit back and teach everybody <laughs> your tricks. That's maybe that's what it is. Maybe I think that that's what it is. But I also think, you know what, there is a lot of, I've made enough money. I mean, I'm also very lucky. I mean, if you want to talk about money for a second, because I'm very lucky. I was very lucky because today it's almost impossible to replicate what I did on Wall Street. 
okay, like for someone who's now entering Wall Street, because for one thing, people are much less well-paid now, okay? Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah. I can tell you that, you know, today sort of the upside is very limited. I mean, there was a time, you know, perhaps even when I started Wall Street, there was a time that people could literally say, you know what, I'm going to work 15 years on Wall Street and retire, okay? <laughs> today, it's almost an impossibility. It's, it is yeah. an impossibility. So from that point of view, young people, if you want to go into, you know, if you, after you graduate, you say, well, I'm going to go work for SEK or Nordea or whatever, you know, listen, you have to accept that you're going to be working there for a very long time. Maybe <laughs> most of your life into your 60s and retire like everybody else. Because the days that bonus is a very big part of your compensation is gone. Unless you are extremely good. And then for people yeah. who are extremely good, they get paid top dollars. And then I was very fortunate that um, through a combination of circumstances to be paid well enough to be able to retire at my age. That's mm. pretty cool. Do you have any like specific episode that you remember strongly from um, your days in Bank of America or like a good call that you made or something like that? I think, listen, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, you know what? I believe in, I, I think I've made good calls and i've also made bad calls and by the way bad calls you know sometimes can also move the needle in terms of your career i'll give you a great example so this is when i was still at Citigroup, okay and i was i told you i was you know basically you know i was running local market strategy for eastern europe middle east and africa and one of the countries in 2000 i think this is in 2003 maybe country that was in big folks at the time was hungary Okay. okay. And Hungary, I was absolutely convinced the flooring was basically about to collapse because they were running a really, really irresponsible policy. Okay. So I recommended claims, okay, to sell the flooring. Okay. In fact, using a structure called the Seagull, which is basically an option strategy. Of course, you know, the trade went terribly wrong. In fact, the foreign was actually came storming back because of intervention. You know, and then as a result, I issue a Mia Coupa, okay, an email going out to all the clients of Citibank, basically saying, you know what, I screwed up. And then the title wow. was was called The Seagull Failed to Take Off. Okay. And in this email, I explained <laughs> what I learned, okay, basically from this whole call that went against me. Guess what? So, you know, because you know, and apparently some clients were very impressed by this honesty because most strategists. Like all these people you see go on TV talking about this trade, that trade. Like if it, yeah. if it basically bombs, you never hear back from them again. I was at least honest enough to admit it and trying to basically draw some lessons. And guess what? One client was so impressed by that admission, okay, that he recommended me for my next big job, which was to run basically global foreign exchange research at Barclays Capital. And I got the job. So that was a good example, actually. Nobody expects you to be right all the time on Wall Street. In fact, you know, if you're right 51% of the time on Wall Street, that's good enough because people realize how hard it is to get things right. 51% time. But what people do want is integrity. People are willing to admit, and believe me, because there are a lot of alpha males working on Wall Street, <laughs> very few people actually would ever admit that they got something wrong. And therefore, I think this is, this is why so much of what I do now, it's about accountability at the end of the day. So, so that was a bad call. I'm going to give you a good call. In 2016, I was the only Wall Street analyst pounding the table saying, 
Trump was going to win the election. And you can actually look it up. You know, you can Google me, David Wu, W-O-O, you know, Donald Trump. You know, 2016, I was the only person banging the table saying Trump was going to get elected. And guess what? Trump got elected. And the next day, when I walked onto the trading floor of Bank America with hundreds of people, I got a standing ovation. And that got reported <laughs> on CNBC. So you can wow. actually, you know, you can look up David Wu, you know, standing ovation, 2016 election, and Donald Trump. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was one of the things that basically uh, made me famous, among other things. But yeah, you sort of wow. have to, well, I think, you know, you have to, if you want to get things, so I mean, as difficult as it is to get things right, you also want to get things right, and people are going to remember you for it. <laughs> <laughs> so and this is actually very important because it's not just about, oh, wow, I got that prediction right with that. You have to basically say it loud enough so people actually remember afterwards. Yeah, this guy basically made this prediction. And he was absolutely right. And this is important because I said, because a lot of people are sort of they're too shy or that they're afraid of being proved right. So they might make a certain prediction, but they're not loud enough. So it's like, you know what? You know, it's the saying if you cut it, if a, if a tree falls in the forest, and nobody saw it, nobody heard it going down, it never happened. <laughs> mm. So the important thing is knowing when you have a strong prediction that you strongly believe it, and you want to shout out from the window so that the whole world hears it. Of course, there's wow. a little risk, because if you're wrong, then you're going to be like a total idiot. But be that to <laughs> me. That was an occasion that worked for me. Swing for the fences, yeah. right? Yeah, if you think you've got the, um, if you if you if you think that you've got a ball coming at you straight, that you know you think you know how to hit it, that's when you swing for the fence. But you don't always swing for the fence. Mm. You only do that when the time is right, when you know you're right, and then you go for it. Have you followed yeah. Stefan Ingves anything in his work, uh, job here, Eriksbanken? Just now departed or? Left. I think Stefan was a great guy. I think, you know, Stefan, you know, you understand, Stefan is very different than other central bankers. Like other central, most central bankers, you know, like, you know, they're an economist by training or they started out as banker. Okay. Stefan, you know, I think he does have an economics degree, but we said that, you know, he was basically, you know, he was, he was in the Ministry of Finance. Right. And he, it just happened that there was a banking crisis. And then therefore he was giving a job having to basically turn around the banking sector. So from that point of view, he saw firsthand, you know, what it means to be living through a crisis. Okay. And at the same time afterwards, you know, he became uh, the president of the uh, Swedish, um, you know, stock exchange. So Stefan also understands how the market works. So Stefan's one of these people, like he's not one of these central bankers who's spent their entire career within the central bank. This guy has a lot of private sector experience. He worked at the IMF, you know, international organization, and he had this background, you know, basically in Ministry of Finance. So I would say that Stefan, there are very few central bankers today that come from, you know, that have, that embody the all different types of experience that Stefan had which I think made him a very unique person. And I think he, no doubt, steered the Swedish economy through, you know, a, a, a tough time in international economic, you know, environment. But I think he did a hell of a job. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Now we've got a new one. We're going to see how that's going to turn out. 
But um, David, I want to ask you because you're a very like macro oriented guy. You always take the macro approach, and a lot of our listeners usually come from the more equity side. You know, try to keep it micro, and um, you know, keep it on the small side. So, what what kind of tips do you have for them, or like how how do you dif- differentiate between the two different approaches? I think first of all, listen honestly. You know, like. Between macro and micro, honestly, I'm a macro guy, so obviously I'm going to be somewhat biased. But I would say that there's no doubt. I mean, if you look at a year like 2022, for example, right? I mean, about the only people who made money were macro investors, right? I mean, macro hedge funds last year had an amazing year. I mean, they were up on average between 25 to 35 percent. I mean, this was an incredible year. The micro guys get absolutely wiped out. Okay. So from that point of view, because also like, you know, in the micro, and by the way, the micro guys, if you're talking about stock, individual stock focus guys, they've done very poorly in the last 10 years. And I'll tell you why this has been going on, because then there is, by the way, we have to differentiate a couple of things. There is mac, there is active investing and there's passive investing and there's macro and there's micro. These are different concepts and it's very important to actually understand what they actually mean when we're talking about them. What has done very well in the last 15 years has been passive investing. Passive investing just means you buy a basically uh, an ETF that's indexed mm-hmm. to a stock index. And that's it. Because there's no doubt that, you know, when the stock market is going up one way, the last thing you want to do is to be trading around it. So you just basically buy an index fund and you keep holding it and then you add it when it goes down. And then the last 10 years, you wouldn't make a killing. Okay. Now, by the way, so from that point of view, passive investing has definitely outperformed active investing for most of the last 10 years, okay? In fact, last year was the first year that active did better than passive. But other than that, passive has done very, very well. Now, macro versus micro, by the way, I would say micro has suffered just as much as the result of passive investing, okay? And what do I mean Mm -hmm. by that? Think about it. In the old days, let's say imagine like, you know, if you are um, an equity mutual fund, you're like a stock picker, right? You're saying, well, this company is good. That company is not so good. So you sell the company that's good, that's bad, and buy the company that's good. But what happens is because passive investing has been so successful, we've been seeing massive migration of funds out of active investment vehicles to these ETFs. Yeah. And when this money, when this new money, okay, goes into an ETF, when it's buying a basically a passive ETF that's indexed to a stock index, basically like dumb money. you're buying everything. You're buying basically all the, all the companies in the index, good or bad. <laughs> so from that point of view, the bad ones get just as much investment as the good ones. So as a result, relative value investing became extraordinarily hard. Because, again, when money is moving out of active into passive, rising tide lifts all boats. So, therefore, the bad companies did just as well as the good companies. Therefore, value investing, stock picking became a loser's game. Because nobody could make any money because nobody could fight, basically, the tide of, basically, money, this migration out of, you know, actively managed funds into passive vehicles. 
but then the tide can only go down right so then you can actively if you manage to stay away from the bad companies overvalued so to speak quote unquote overvalued companies i mean you can make money on the way down when the by the way just so that you know even last year last year the market did very poorly and guess what even more money moved out of active to passive yeah. <laughs> so by the way even now something like only 30% of total basically whatever investable assets are sitting in passive. So there's still going to be a lot of money coming out of active into passive. So this whole migration story, okay, which has been a big driver of returns over the last 10 years, probably set to continue. Especially mm -hmm. given the fact that again, over the last 10 years, okay, less than 15% of actively managed mutual fund managers have outperformed their benchmarks. So yeah. most people it's are thinking about so why do bad. I want to pay you 2% when I can basically, you know, basically just buy an index fund and pay 0.2%. That yeah. is the thing. Just because this is actually, and then by the way, as more money goes out of basically active to passive, it makes this even more difficult for people to outperform basically the, the passive benchmark. So as a result, get into a visual circle. But what I'm just telling you is that even though we know this is a visual circle, it's probably set to continue because it's not over yet. And there is a tendency, there is not a tendency, but there there are some uh, passive funds that are being charged, like active ones here in Sweden. Yeah. And especially on yeah, the sustainable it's some, side. It's, some, it's an active fund, but it's... Yeah. It invests like a passive fund. Discount. Yeah, exactly. So, so oh, they buy yeah. like index stocks, basically, and that's the only thing they hold. Yeah, I mean, they're probably not that good because at the end of the day, you know what? At the end of the day, you know, people like this, I, I, I was just in Brazil, you know, basically mm. about a month ago. You know, I saw all the big, you know, actually very interesting because Brazil is one of these countries, you know, where there are practically no mutual funds. They only have hedge funds. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, and, and by the way, you know, the top 10 hedge funds in Brazil last year, the average return was around... 25 to 30%. They did extremely well. Okay. And you know what? They get paid. The, the reason is because they paid 220. Okay. Like any hedge funds in the world. So basically, the best of the best students coming out of universities, you know, they join and go work for these hedge funds. So when your brightest mind, okay, end up working in an industry that actually pays you extremely well, guess what? You're going to get very good performance. And these are active, okay? So what I'm saying is that if you want to basically, if you want to outperform, okay, there's almost no cheap way of doing it because there are only that many very, very good investors and they're not going to do it for the price for chunk change, <laughs> like basically oh. passive funds. Anybody, any active investors that want to basically charge you only basically passive fund basically fees, they're by definition not very good. <laughs> because anybody who's good basically want to be compensated because, you know, this is a, this is about making money. This is not, you're doing, you're not performing charity here. <laughs> no. So, I mean, really you know, not. so it's one of these things, like there is no cheap, you know, basically, uh, there are no cheap investors. Let's put it that way. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. Wow. And I have one question also, like uh, one popular stance, at least within like Swedish Fin uh, Twitter and like some in the Swedish community, they think that basically to predict macroeconomics is so difficult that it's 
basically not worth your while to do it. So you should basically just ignore it and just focus on the micro. Do you think that this is a reasonable thing to say? That you can you afford to just ignore macroeconomics in your asset allocation? I don't think I don't think you can, and I think you shouldn't. Listen, you can afford to ignore macro, basically uh, the macro environment, if the macro environment is very stable. Right? <laughs> I mean, stable in the sense that you know nothing is changing. So from that point of view, like for example, you know, I mean, from two thousand. To 2010, I think that was a pretty obvious investment environment in terms of macro, because the macro theme during that period was up. Okay, China just joined the World Trade Organization. We're seeing massive outsourcing to China that was, you know, basically um, resulting very, very low inflation, and central banks were cutting interest rates. And because Chinese basically uh, appetite for commodities, commodity prices were going up. So we went through 10 years, okay, that that was the overarching theme, okay, for the macro investor. So if you bought commodities, you did well. If you bought emerging markets, you did well. If you bought bonds, you did very well because we were in disinflationary environment. In that kind of environment, sure, you might be able to focus on maybe on individual stocks, which stocks are going to better leverage, okay, these macro trends. But at least that was a very stable environment, okay? And that lasted 10 years until 2008, 2009. And then China, by the way, from 2012 onward, Chinese growth went below 10%, okay? Mm. And when it went below 10%, that was when that trade was over, <laughs> okay? So from that point of view, you know, which is not to say that, you know what, you know, so we have to understand, you know, when you think about macro, right? We're talking about cycles. I think with the, you know, investments about, investment cycles because when we're talking about the great thing about cycles is like oh wow because cycles there's a beginning the middle and the end and you know that b is going to come after a and the c is going to come after b there's a certain pattern when we're talking about cycles okay and cycles can last for a very long time but you need to know at least where we are in the cycle if you want to be a, a even a micro investor okay you know are we are we, are we, I mean, is business cycle in an upswing or is it a downswing? Is inflation going to be going up or going down? Because, by the way, if you look at the way stocks trade, I mean, forget about stocks. Just look at basically sectors within the stock market, right? For example, you know, right now, you know, like, for example, last, you know, 2022, right, was a good example, right? Everything, every sector went down in S&P 500, Okay. Except for one. Energy as well? Yeah, except for energy, right? Yeah. Energy was up 60%, right? And that had to do with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So from that point of view, like you could basically be looking at micro and this and this and that. You have no idea because that was that changed all of a sudden everything we knew. It didn't really matter where you bought a good company, a bad company. If a company that was a major consumer of oil, okay, did very poorly. So from that point of view, again, we need to know, like, you know what? Like, for example, Tesla, right? If you didn't know, like, oh, well, I actually think Tesla is a bit oversold at this point. But when Tesla came down, largely because, you know, China is the biggest car market in the world. People don't realize this, right? China, basically 25, China, I mean, like 25 million cars are sold in China every year. 
The U.S. is the second largest, only 15 million. You know, the mm-hmm. third largest market after China, the U.S., is India right now. It's 4 million. So you wow. can see, like, tw- China's 25. <laughs> and China is the biggest fucking electrical, basically, a vehicle, basically, market. So when they basically decide to basically shut down the economy because of whatever, you know what? It's going to have a massive knock-on effect on basically Tesla, right? So that's a good example that you have to actually know what's going on. So if you are basically, if you think Tesla is an amazing company, great technology, but you don't know what's actually going on in China. You have, like right now, I think China is about to hit basically herd immunity over the next two or three weeks, that everything's going to go back to normal. They're starting already in the beginning of February. I think the Chinese economy is going to take off. Going from, let's say, minus 3% GDP growth to plus 8%, a swing of 10%. What do you think that means for Tesla? So I'm just saying that you could basically find the best company in the world, whatever that means. But if it's up against adverse, basically, macro environment, it doesn't matter, okay, how good they are, okay? NVIDIA. NVIDIA was a great company. Like, everybody loves NVIDIA. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden declared tech war on China. So NVIDIA can no longer sell into its biggest market, which is China. Okay? You're screwed. Because this is the reason why U.S. is the best semiconductor companies. But guess what? 30% of semiconductor sales in the world go to China. So when all of a sudden the U.S. decide, you know what? We don't want to sell China any semiconductors because we don't want them to get it, you know, basically uh, to move ahead of us in quantum computing and autonomous driving. Guess what? It doesn't really matter how good your semiconductors are. That's when macro matters. Mm. especially macro matters when you're looking at discrete change. Very often we're looking at continuous change, right? If it's continuous change, then it's like more predictable. Like, you know, if it's something's going up smoothly, it's very different than when you go from zero to one. And then, but what you need to recognize is that whether we're looking at cycles, whether we're looking at regimes, investment is heavily sensitive. Two, once you are in an established regime or established cycle, you might basically make the case, now Now let's go back to basically looking for undervalue, overvalue stocks, that kind of thing. That makes sense. But you first of all have to know which regime you're in, even if you cannot predict which, when, when it's going to be the next regime. Okay? That's very, very important. Like right now, for example, right now we're sort of like, right now, Wall Street forecast is that there's a 65% chance the U.S. economy is going to be in a recession in the next 12 months. There's a forecast of 90% chance the U.K. will be in a recession the next year, right? But yet, they're not yet in a recession. So right now, we're in like a twilight zone. It's like a recession, no recession. This is actually the most difficult thing, actually, by the way. It's when you're in between. It's when you're in between, okay, basically different points of the cycle. Okay, and then how do you invest? Because the market usually in that kind of environment is schizophrenic, right? Market, you know, yeah. like, do I sell stocks or I buy stock? Do I buy bonds or I sell bonds? You have no idea? Okay, so this is when, like, you have to know, like, at the end of the day, you know what? Nobody's good at everything. You just have to know, you know, what you're good at. And basically, and basically take risk when you think that what you know okay, allows you to basically, gives you a leg up on everybody else. Hmm. And so from that point of view, someone who is definitely going to lose money is a generalist. A generalist definitely never is going to make any money, okay? Damn, that's not good for me. (laughs) Specialists will make money, but specialists 
you have to sort of a specialist, but who also understands the macro backdrop. That is the kind of thing that will really make you money. Okay. You also have to realize, like, you know, and this is actually very important because this is why, like, you have to, you know, the most important thing in life, and it's just not about investing, you have to know what you know. Even more important, you have to know what you don't know. Okay. Because only when you know what you don't know, okay, you don't basically take stupid risk. Okay. <laughs> because I can tell you, Traders and hedge fund managers, those who investors who make money, okay, over time, a lot of money, they tend to be people who lose very little money when they're wrong. Okay. The important thing is to lose very little money when you're wrong and make a lot of money when you're right. That's the way to make money. And in order to not to lose too much money when you're wrong, you have to know what you don't know, okay, so that you are much more careful. Okay, when you are basically venturing into things that, you know, that are unknown to you. Okay. Mm. And then you also have to know when you're wrong. So to get stopped out of your trades and not get too stubbornly stuck. And that's a very, very important thing, you know. And I think from that point of view, I think that requires a certain discipline, self-knowledge. This is why I was like emotional intelligence, very important thing, because emotional intelligence, first of all, it's about self-awareness. It's about being aware of your own shortcomings. And that's very important because I think a lot of young people today, the problem is not what they, whether they know what they know, is that they definitely don't know what they don't know. And that is the most dangerous thing when it comes to investing because that's the fastest way to lose your pants, your shirt, and everything else. Okay? And that's what happened to a lot of people over the last two or three years. So from that point of view, right now, what I can tell you is, you know, I wanted to come on this program because I understand you guys all trying to become stock pickers, which is great if you, you know, if that's what you want to do. But I would argue in this particular point in time, you know, the whole macro backdrop is so uncertain. You don't think it's going to make a very big difference whether this war in Ukraine is going another three months, six months, 12 months, whether it's going to basically result in a Russian offensive that it's going to overwhelm Ukraine, whether it's going to result in basically Putin being dethroned or that if NATO were to basically get directly involved, that, you know, Russia might eventually resort to a nuclear war. You don't think that matters? You know, so I said before, I, I think, first of all, you know, to make money, you first of all have to stop. You have to try not to lose money. Okay. If you don't lose money and you only make money, you're going to make well. This is, by the way, it's called, you know, taking asymmetric risk. By the way, this is another thing people don't realize, which is that ideally you want to risk $1.00 to make $3. Like, in fact, actually, you will be hard-pressed to find any, you know, successful traders or fund managers who would basically, let's say, risk $1 to make $1 because that doesn't make any sense. We're all risk-averse, right? So from that point, you've got to be compensated for taking risk. So three to one is the minimum, okay? Mm. And this is also the reason why people are looking for people who can achieve decent sharp ratio, right? Which is a risk-adjusted return. If you take a lot of risk and you make a lot of money, you know what? That it's not basically evidence that you're a great trader or a great investor, right? You might be lucky. You, know, you might be just lucky, exactly. So from that point of view, this is why taking asymmetric risk is very, very important, okay? Hopefully, and by the way, it's just like a good example. Right now, 10-year treasury yields trading at 3.5%. 
And I would argue at this point, I went out with a video yesterday saying this is a good time to go short because I actually think it would be very difficult for 10-year treasuries to go below 3.5%. There's strong technical support there. There is basically also, you know, because the, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the slope of the yield curve has become so inverted that at this point there will be negative, negative math, you know, basically uh, negative carry, okay, if uh, someone were to go basically go long 10-year treasury yields below basically 350. So whereas I think you go up to four. So ideally, actually, that's, by the way, that's what technical analysis is all about, by the way which is, again, knowing where the upside is relative to the downside, okay, when you basically execute a trade. So this is, and by the way, what's connected to this, which is equally important, is knowing what is pricing the market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And with that, we want to say thank you to David Wu. Um, we had such an amazing conversation with David, and due to it, uh, seemed to be coming too long. Really wanted we wanted to split it into two segments so we can really enjoy everything uh, and every wisdom of his. Um, so, Marcus, what do you say about doing a volley of the week? Ooh, boom, volley! Um, I'm adding it to you. You want to smash it, or what, what's happening? You're gonna pass it up. I had a really good volley, but I forgot it. <laughs> the classic one. It, yeah, it was in the, when we were discussing the intro. You said something about the uh, macro, I think. Tankers or? Okay, I, I have a small yeah. short go, volley. Go, Tim. Uh, and I noticed today, uh, Biotic had some positive um, news with Biogen uh, concerning their Alzheimer's medicine. And I just looked at an interview on CNBC with the Biogen CEO, and he looked really optimistic about this this medicine's um, yeah basically adaptation and um, enrollment into the the US healthcare system. And it's like I think the it was quoted like a nine billion dollar revenue target or something, and it's gonna be uh, probably going to be approved in H2 2023. And so this is certainly uh, a stock which has it has had successes, but I think it might have. You should keep it on your radar. That's what I want to say. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, they're doing some amazing things over there. So go by Arctic. Woo. Yeah. Back to my volley. Do you have something stupid or something fun to say at least? <laughs> 
as I mentioned in the intro, um, I work part-time in the harbor here in Gothenburg. And I actually took the time off to go speak to the people in charge of the the planning and the loading. And I asked them, like, how's the economy looking? What are the import-exports looking like? What, um, really? Yeah. And, and they told me that it was actually... I, because my, my theory was, from, from what I had seen in terms of mm, numbers of containers loaded yeah. and offloaded... Uh, my theory was that it was um, uh, low volume and we were really su- showing signs of a uh, bad economy. But mm. actually, they said they experienced over 50% more um, than they had expected, both in terms of receiving and sending goods. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I don't know if uh, what that's uh, dependent on, but um, what's they were... the results of this? Who knows? Um, I don't know. He, he mentioned that there there was a lot of containers that are being imported to Sweden for storage and to deal with the supply chain problems that have occurred since COVID. And yep. also that a lot of exporting Swedish companies need empty containers to export stuff. So that was that, that the imports were mainly or like a lot of... Um, basically empty containers to export okay. and to take care of supp- uh, so it isn't issues. as many goods basically yeah but um, anyhow I mean the volumes were larger than expected so I don't know how yeah. to interpret that I think exports um, are still rolling Bull Volvo yeah yeah <laughs> sounds like it sounds like it at least okay well uh, if someone wants to get in touch with us where are they gonna reach us out do that via our email nantingomaktier uh, <laughs> at gmail.com or they can do it via social media which is nantingomaktier uh, yeah. both on Twitter and on Instagram yeah and of course just always remember that everything that is said in this podcast should not be regarded as financial recommendation or advice you should always do your own research and analysis um, and with that we want to thank you for, for listening and um Hopefully you're going to listen in for your continuation with uh, the great David Wu next week. Perfect, Tim. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. Yeah, goodbye. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.